And he said, okay, I want to go home. And the doctor said, well, you can't do that. You, you'd be checking out against medical advice. And he said, well, what are you going to do for me if I stay here? And he didn't have an answer. And so Ron said, then I'm going home. The doctor refused to give him any of the medications that he needed because he was checking out against medical advice. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's guest has endured the experience of becoming a widow twice, with poor health causing the death of two husbands. After her second husband died, she turned to writing to help her deal with her grief, discovering that she could use writing to help others too. Her new book, Loving and Living Life, Your Way Through Grief, is a comprehensive guide to reclaiming and cultivating joy and carrying on in the face of loss. She's now a grief transformation expert and presents writing through grief workshops. Episode 61, Emily Thoreau Threat. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you've got a... um a story which unfortunately is not so uncommon, which is a story of, of grief because you've left uh, lost uh, your husband. But in your situation, you didn't just lose one husband. You actually lost two husbands of the three that you've had. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the first end, ended up, you were married quite young and you ended up in, in divorce. So how, I think it's probably a good place to start at the at the end of that marriage. How old were you when that, that marriage ended? Um, 31. Okay. And how did you meet Jacques, your then second husband? Second husband. I met Jacques at a party, actually. He was a, a professor at the local college, and I'd been taking a, a summer class at the local college, and somebody had a party to celebrate the end of summer school and invited both the, the staff uh, teachers and professors and and the students both and I went to that and I met him there you ended up dating your lecturer I'm sorry what uh, you ended up dating your lecturer he wasn't mine no <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hadn't met him before that party but <laughs> he was uh, he was in the same department he was a philosophy professor and I'd been taking logic all summer from somebody else so you were 31 he was how old he was, uh, let me see, we, we got, when we got married, I was 35 and he was uh, 56. Okay. So we were 21 years apart. And you had three kids from your first marriage? No, I had two children from my first marriage. Okay. And you ended up with three, so I take it you had one with Jacques then? No, no. Oh. <laughs> it's confusing. I had my, my two children with my first marriage. Then Jacques, w- at, at 55, he, he already had three grown children. And so there were three there. And then my next marriage, I ended up with Ron, who had three grown children. So Okay. All right. So talk me through... Um, how, like that marriage. So how long were you before you got the diagnosis of uh, Jacques? Well, with Jacques, um, he actually around our fifth wedding anniversary, he knew that something was wrong and we weren't really sure. And it ended up that it was his heart and he ended up having his first heart surgery. He had five bypasses and uh, not five. He had seven bypasses. I didn't know there were seven things you could bypass in a heart no. bypass surgery. but So what made him think that something was wrong? Well, we, Jacques was an incredibly pleasant, fun, upbeat person. He, he was just wonderful. And it, what happened was he started getting cranky. And I, I, that just wasn't him. And I, I thought it was very strange. And 
uh, we had a had a busy weekend. I was performing in a, in a play at the mel- melodrama theater that we had in town, and he just wasn't very pleasant to be around. And on on Sunday morning, I said, "Are you feeling okay?" And he he said, "No, I, I'm I really am not." But he didn't know what it was, so I had been work. I worked my way through college as a, a nurse, and so I took his blood pressure. I, I thought I'd check that. Well, his blood pressure was so high that it was, uh, he, I know he needed to go to the emergency room right away. And I didn't want to tell him what it was because I knew he'd freak out if he knew it was that high. So I just told him it was really high and we needed to go, you know, make sure I was right, get it checked out at the hospital. And so he wouldn't go. <laughs> so his his very good friend uh who he acted a lot with also was a, a a physician and he was happened to be working at an urgent care that weekend so i called him at work and explained to him what the situation is and he's he said just tell him to come visit with me have him come over and talk to me and we'll talk about it and i said thank you <laughs> So when we got to the uh, parking lot of the urgent care, he was out there with a gurney and with nitroglycerin to put under his tongue and he was all ready for everything to go and did an EKG right away and insisted that he had to go to the hospital, which he did. And that's he ended up with the, the seven bypasses that time. And he also at that time discovered that he was uh, diabetic, which had, had led to that. So we had to deal with learning all about how to do insulin and changing his diet and exercise and everything else. So after he'd been married five years, everything just really significantly changed. Talk me from that journey, the recovery of the seven, because that's not an, um, that's open heart surgery. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, they're cranking the chest open. It's not an easy surgery to recover from. Um, What was that process like? Because it was, number of years later that you lost him so talk me through yes well he he never was quite up to the same energy level as he'd been like when we first got together but he was very good about recovering after that first surgery he they had something called cardiac rehab at the hospital that he could go to three times a week and he did that faithfully and we'd go on long walks in our our neighborhood um just like every day and at the time, roses were blooming all over the place, and he kept walking up in people's yards to smell the roses. And I said, you don't have to take that so literally. I'm not sure they want you walking in their yards, but they smell so good, and they're so beautiful. So we we have lots of laughter in, in our relationship. And he, he did pretty well for a while. He taught a little while longer and then just decided that, that it was he was having – a hard time like walking from the the car up to where his classrooms and his office were it was quite a distance and he just didn't have the energy he realized that he physically wasn't as as fit as he'd been before and then he started uh actually it was a uh another anniversary i think when he had the the heart issue the second time and that was really kind of interesting because he he knew something was wrong. He said, I really feel like I did right before I had the first heart surgery. And I thought, oh, shoot, something's going wrong. And he was a singer um, and he had made friends with a, a cardiac doctor, cardiologist, who also was a singer and they used to sing at parties together and things. So, And I didn't like this guy at all. He didn't have a good reputation. I didn't want him to go to him. So he insisted on going to see him and he did some tests and looked him over and he goes, well, you've got a, a, a blockage. And I said, how could he have a blockage? He has seven bypasses. There's nothing left to bypass. He goes, no, he's got a serious blockage. I, I can see it here on the um, echocardiogram that we did. And Jacques asked me if, or asked him if he could see his echocardiogram because he hadn't been able to see the other one. And his his first cardiologist the first time had shown me the echocardiogram because this was kind of weird. Um, Jacques was, um, well, the doctor called him hyper. And he was just worried about himself and about what was happening that, that first time when he was in the hospital, when he ended up with the seven bypasses. And they took him in to do the echocardiogram. And this doctor came out to talk to me afterwards that I hadn't met before. And he said, your husband is very nervous. And so I had to really sedate him 
I, I don't know how long it's going to take him to wake up from this, but I had to really sedate him. And he said, and I'm going to tell you what's wrong, but you cannot tell your husband what I'm going to tell you right now. I said, okay, go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I knew what I'd do, but <laughs> he, he thought he was convincing me not to do something. And he said his, his heart is so severely blocked. I, I don't know how he made it to the hospital. I, I just wow. don't know. I'm not sure he can make it through the surgery. It, it's just, it, this is very, very, very serious. And you can't tell him because if you tell him, you're going to um, upset him so that, that he may die because you upset him. I said, well, oh, thank you very pressure. much. Awful it was pressure horrible. To put, yeah. yeah. It, it was really bad. Fortunately, and the doctor didn't know my medical background and that I had a really good relationship with Jacques. We didn't lie to each other, especially not about something very important. Mm. So when he finally woke up, he was back in his room in the hospital and I'd climbed up in bed next to him and we were kind of cuddling and he said, well, what did they find? And I said, well, they, they found some significant blockages and you're going to have to have open heart surgery. And he said, oh, okay, that's great. I'm so glad. I know I'm going to have a surgery and I'll feel better and everything will be better. And I said, yeah, you're just fine. Well, a few minutes later, the doctor came in and he started lying to Jacques <laughs> about, you know, that it wasn't that bad and not to worry. He didn't have anything to worry about. They were just going to do a little procedure for him. And uh, I said, excuse me, <laughs> don't lie. I said he, he, I told him the truth already. And he was furious. This doctor was absolutely furious. And he stomped out of the room and slammed his hospital door. It was <laughs> bizarre. And Jacques and but I just kind of left. Isn't that something against the Hippocratic Oath or something that you can't withhold information from a patient? Yes. Right. Yes. He was he was totally, totally out of line. Yeah. That's a whole nother story that I could tell you that we found out about him afterwards. But he he only he oh, was the person that. only who did the the uh <laughs> he did the diagnosis, but he didn't do the surgery. I there's no way I would have allowed that man to do the surgery, but he wasn't a surgeon, he was a cardiologist, and we had a cardiac surgeon do the surgery. So I was still there with, with Jacques in his hospital room waiting because we had to transfer him to a different hospital for the surgery. And that doctor's office called me and said, the doctor would like to see you right now. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm here in Jacques' room. And he said, no, he's in his office. And his office was across the street from the hospital. And he wants you to come see him right now. And I thought, this is interesting. <laughs> so I told Jacques what the, they said. And he said, go. I want to see what he he's going to tell you. <laughs> so I went over there and when I walked in the door, the, all the, all of his staff there was going, Ooh, you know, I thought, you know, who knows what they told them because they were, they had this terrible reaction. So I went uh, into his office and he had the echocardiogram set up on a thing that could screen it so I could watch it. And he was pointing out all the different blockages to me. And he pointed out one and he said, this one's the most significant. This one is called the Widowmaker. And if it gets any more blocked, he's going to be gone before they can do anything about it. And if, if that happens, it's your fault. That's awful. And I said, thank you very much and left. So, and I didn't tell Jacques about the Widowmaker. I figured that was just at that point too much information. I just told him that he showed me the blockages in, in his echocardiogram, and he was kind of ticked off because he wanted to see it too. So mm. this second time when he started having the symptoms again, and he went to his friend, the doctor, and he told him he had a blockage, and Jacques asked if he could see the echocardiogram. Uh, the doctor said, sure. And we went into this little room, and it was a practice where there were several cardiologists, and there happened to be one there who was, was a doctor that we knew. He was doing research for them. And as we were going in the room, he goes, what's going on? And when we told him that we were going in there to see his echocardiogram, he goes, oh, I'll come. You know, and so he came in the room with us and we're in this dark room. And this second doctor, not the one that I was just telling you the story about, but the new doctor several years later, pointed to a spot on, on the thing that said, this is the Widowmaker. And it's so bad if he doesn't get that taken care of right away, he can die from that. And thank goodness our friend came in with us because he looked at it and he said, uh, you're not seeing where it was already bypassed there. They already did that. That's not his problem. He's got a problem with his valve. Look down a little bit and you'll see the valve is what's causing what's happening to him now. And he said, oh, I must have made a mistake. 
Now, this is after we had, we lived in Central California, and he had already arranged for us to drive all the way to San Diego to get this um, bypass surgery that he didn't need done. And had we done that, he probably would have died before we got there. So they decided that they would send him to Los Angeles for the procedure, and they replaced his heart valve because it, it was just shot and it was, wasn't functioning anymore. So he had to do that. And after that, he never did get really nearly as strong as he ever had been before. And he kept having to go into the hospital more and more times. And at that time, I owned a, a live theater and school of arts and a, a cafe and an art gallery. It was all in this one big, beautiful old building. And it was, it was a lot of work. And Jacques had spent a lot of time down there with me, but I spent most of my time down there, but I was having to spend more and more time with him. And I was ending up taking my computer to the hospital with me so I could do payroll on my computer next to his hospital bedside and do all that sort of thing. And finally, I said, I just can't do this anymore. So we happened to have a, a nonprofit foundation that operated alongside the, the theater and school so that any children that wanted to take any of the classes would be able to have a scholarship to go to the classes so nobody would be turned away. So I went to that foundation and I said, this is a really big ask, but if I donate this whole thing to you, will you accept it? And they did. So I gave up all my, my business, my theater, my school, my gallery, my cafe, everything was, it was just gone so I could stay home and take care of him. And it was good that I did because he frequently had to go to the hospital and he'd be in the hospital for long periods of time. And they, they, I didn't go home most of the time because they were never sure whether he was going to make it through the next hour even. And finally he had, one day when I, I wasn't home, I'd gone to do something. He'd gotten in the car to drive someplace and he wasn't his, it was his car, but he wasn't supposed to be driving because he was too weak. Hmm. And somebody called me and she said, do you know where Jacques is? And I said, well, he's, he's at home. And she said, uh, no, he's not. <laughs> I just saw him standing by an accident scene and it looked like his car was involved. So I went there immediately and he just didn't see the car in front of him and ran into it. And fortunately, nobody was hurt. Both of the cars were pretty significantly damaged and we had to put his car in the shop for a long time. <laughs> but when he was gonna, it was time for him to get out of, or get the car out of the shop, I said, you know what? Our cars, we've had them for a while. How about if we get a nice new car that's easier for you to get in and out of and that uh, it would be brand new and we'll just trade in both of our cars on it. And it took him a while to figure out what I was doing, but not until <laughs> after we'd gotten the new car. <laughs> but when we went to pick up the car, we, we did most of the things the first day and we had to come back the next day to actually pick it up because there were some things they had to do for it. And we were living at the time in central California where it gets, it was high desert, very, very, very hot. And it was about 110 degrees outside. And when we got out of our car at the car dealership, there was nobody in the parking lot. Nobody was around any place. And it was an asphalt parking lot. And we both got out of the car and I, I heard him just over my shoulder making this very funny high-pitched sound. And I turned around and I saw he was on his way to fall. And I was able to, to grab him from behind underneath both of his arms and hold on to him so that he wouldn't fall down. And I screamed and I screamed and I screamed and nobody heard me because the uh, doors were closed and the air conditioner was on and in the, in the shop as well as in the, the dealership uh, place at the car dealership there and nobody heard me. And finally I had to put him down. He was, he was, very heavy dead weight so to speak and wow. i had to, to lie him down on the, this hot asphalt and run in and said call 911 and get out here now and help me get him up off this asphalt and they did they they grabbed a rolling desk chair and, and several men came out with that and they were able to pick him up and put him on that chair and take him in and then lie him down on the floor once they got in the, the cooler room while we were waiting for the ambulance and we did get him to the hospital, but he was in a coma by the time we got him to the hospital. And they didn't give us much hope of him getting better. But again, he got better. 
not real better, but he was better. And he was in the hospital a couple of weeks that time and was, was really touch and go. And he had had, he had second degree burns on his, his back, uh, all the way down and on, on his legs, his, his foot in particular, he, as, as I put him down, somehow it had scraped the skin off the side of his foot and that, that never grew back. And so he had to have all these dressing changes for the burns all the time. So he was in for quite a while. So the asphalt was that hot that it actually burned him. Yeah. The asphalt burned wow. him. Yeah. Cause when it's 110 outside shining on asphalt, it just almost, sometimes you can see little bubbles where it's kind of boils. The, mm. the asphalt kind of boils because it's so hot. So they said I could take him home, but they, they showed me all, all that I needed to do to tra- change his dressings. I said, I don't have anything at home to change his dressings from, and I can't take him home and leave him and go get stuff. I said, is there anything you can give me? And they said they were sorry. They just didn't have anything they could give me. But they told me where a hospital supply store was, which was across the street from another hospital. So we drove there on the way home, and I said, just sit in the car. It'll only take me a minute. They've already called in the order. All I have to do is walk in, pick it up, and come out to the car. So just sit here for a minute. And he said, okay. And he he seemed to be with it and cognizant and everything, and I, I had no reason to believe he wouldn't do that. But by the time I got out of the car and got around to the other side of the car, he'd opened his door and fallen out of the, the car and broken his hip. Oh, no. So they had to take him by ambulance from the medical supply store across the street to no, to another hospital. And then he ended up having to have his hip replaced. And with the anesthetic for the surgery, it caused his kidneys to fail. So he ended up having to go on dialysis. And so the next, that was in uh, August and he died in February. And he spent most of that time at home. He'd go in the hospital for a couple of days at a time when he'd start bleeding or something bad was going on and they had to get it under control. And then we brought it back, back home. And it was... I never, um, I never knew that anesthetic can cause renal failure. Yeah, it, it, it can. Because the, the kidneys are strong in a way but they're delicate in another and yeah. it went when they're not in real good shape and they were already beginning to to fail some because if his heart failure was so bad that it was it was straining his kidneys so his kidneys were already under strain and they they have a tendency to avoid as much surgery as they possibly can with anybody who has uh, renal failure especially people actually on dialysis because it, it can cause that to happen so that's what happened there. And then finally, uh, he got, I had a wonderful friend come and stay with me those last six months. I hadn't seen her in many, many years. And that's, that's a long story, a kind of wonderful story that she happened to find me after not seeing her in all those years. And she ended up just moving into my house and staying with me and helping me take care of him. Wow. And it was a true miracle. There's no way that I could have managed him by myself otherwise I, we would have had to figure out a way to to get him to stay someplace else and that would have broken both our hearts so it was it was perfect and we we did stay with him and as i said he was a, a, a philosophy professor and he had written a college textbook many years before and about every two years they would do a new edition of it and his, the edition, the last edition that he had been working on was due about a year before, but everything had been slowing down. I'd been helping him with it as much as I could, but it, it took a while to get everything done. And finally, uh, on a Friday morning, we got it finished, and it was the first time we could submit it electronically. So we submitted it and sent it back to New York, and the his editor called, and she was so excited, and we just celebrated on the phone and he was so happy that he got this done because I think he thought he wasn't going to get it done with all these bouts in the hospital and thing. He didn't think he was going to be able to do it and he was thrilled. And he had to go to dialysis that afternoon. And when I walked him out to the car, when he sat down in the car, he looked up at me and he, he said a not very nice word. It was a word that showed me that he was shocked at whatever it was that was happening. And then he was dead. Just like that, in the car, sitting on the edge of the car. So that was that situation. You obviously had no idea that he was that close to Mm-mm. to passing. I, I think he was waiting to finish his book 
Yeah. I, I really think he was struggling to do that. Wow. I hear um, from the widows that I've spoken to, one of the things that has popped up before that they weren't expecting, they expect to be sad, they expect to miss them, um, they expect the, the waves of grief to come through, but they don't expect the fear of being alone and what sort of tackling the world um, means by themselves and sort of navigating this new journey I suppose without the significant other did you experience that as well Emily absolutely yeah we were both very prominent in the community in in many different ways I was teaching at the university teaching writing at the university and he was teaching uh, philosophy at the college and we both were doing lots of theater and I was very involved in different forms of public service and he was too in different forms so we'd been there for 22 years everybody knew us uh, and it, I couldn't go any place without running into people that I knew. And we had an absolutely beautiful, fantastic celebration for him. And there were tons of people there. And so many people came up and said, just let me know if I could do anything. Well, they all disappeared after he died. Nobody called. Nobody came. If I called anybody, the answering machine picked up and they didn't call back. It was like they, they couldn't deal with it they were dealing with his loss too when he first got sick people were coming to the hospital constantly it was always like a party in his hospital room and the longer he was sick the fewer people came until the last maybe eight months or so if my girlfriend wouldn't have happened to show up i would and my my daughter lived in texas and she she would fly out once a month for a job that she was doing in in the town where we lived she she had moved there from there so she'd come out for a couple of days a month and help, but nobody else was there. They just were all gone. And I didn't get invited any place. I didn't feel like inviting myself any place, you know, and it, it was it was quite a shock. And I was I knew it was coming. I didn't have any idea what it was gonna be like. I I had never lived alone in my life. And I was just not in a real good place then. Mm. Do you think um, that it's because people didn't know what to say, so they avoided? So. Yeah, yeah, they didn't want to say the wrong thing, and no, well, that and they're used to. They love being around him because he was so happy and upbeat, mm. and you know he made them laugh, and and they were very very comfortable with him, and they, I think they just couldn't equate losing him. And, and losing that and coming to the house and having him not be there. Mm. I think also if they petered off towards the end, they probably didn't realize mm -hmm. just how bad he was. So it was I think almost they like saw how bad he was and it was hard for them to see that. Oh, okay. I, I really think that, that that was it, that it got harder and harder for them to deal with because they knew everybody was shocked that he lived as long as he did with all the challenges that he had. Hmm. How did you navigate that? Uh, I didn't do much of anything for a while. Fortunately, I, I had stopped working at the university when I opened the, the theater and school of arts. And I, since I didn't have the theater anymore, since I'd given it to the nonprofit and I didn't have my job out there, I wasn't sure what I was going to do or where I was going to go or what was going to happen. And the university actually called me and said, we would love for you to come back and teach for us. That's nice. It was fabulous, and I'm, I'm still teaching for them online there in California, and I'm in Hawaii, and I, I still teach for them. I was doing did that you, right before I came on today. Did you prompt that? No. Oh, no, they just they reached just out of the blue. That's nice. Yeah, some of them were at the that his celebration of life, and so they, they had seen me, and they knew he was gone, and they knew that I didn't have the theater anymore, and they just took a chance and called and said, we, we would really love for you to come back. That's lovely. So how long, and everyone's different, so how long was that process for you in terms of, or do you, I suppose you probably never stop grieving in some respects? Oh, no. I, I, yeah. I'll grieve them and my parents and my sister and all my friends I've lost. I'll grieve them the rest of my life. But it's, it's you hold them in your heart. It's not mm. like you're, you're sad and, 
and tearful about them all the time. But with um, Jacques, he died in February. Interestingly, he had me take him to a store to buy my Valentine's Day gift for me so that he'd be sure that he had it. And I said, you know, it's pretty early to do that. And he goes, no, I just want to make sure that we get this done. And he got the gift and the card and everything. And he died on February 6th. So he just, I think he knew that he mm. wasn't going to be there to give it to me. Um, anyway, when New Year's Eve came around, I said, I can't go on like this. All I was doing is going to school and teaching and coming home and sitting. I wasn't like watching TV or eating a lot or I just not even reading or anything. I, I would mostly sit. And I knew that wasn't healthy for me and that I had to do something. And what came to me was that I needed to accept invitations. And I thought, that's crazy. <laughs> Nobody's invited me any place. I, I had one friend, actually, who had, had invited me a couple of times to go someplace. And I went with her, and I was really grateful. But it was just, I thought it was crazy. But I thought it, it was so strong. I had this feeling so strong that that was what I was supposed to do that I said I would. And as soon as I did, the invitations started to come. Nothing that I expected. And they were all fascinating. And I did things I never would have thought about doing before in my life. The, like first, one, the first one was I got asked to be on the editorial board for the newspaper. Right. It was a big newspaper that served the, the whole county. And the county is quite large, bigger than several states in, in the U.S., and so the, the newspaper for the county was a, a big deal. And they invited me to come be on the editorial board, which was absolutely fascinating. It was a one-year term, and I learned so much and met so many people. It was just great. And then the, the regional medical center called me and asked me if I would be on their ethics committee. That Jacques had been on it as a professional, but they needed a community member to be on it. And they thought that I would be a good person since I'd been married to Jacques. And so I served on the ethics committee at the regional center, which was amazing. Um, I ended up, I, my daughter had convinced me to go to a trainer who was a friend of hers, who also was an ultra marathon bicycle racer. Oh, goodness. And so he, he was always talking about his races and he was going to do one. And, and he, I said, gee, that, that, I, can I come watch? And he goes, well, you know, it, the race is 24 hours long. It's kind of hard to watch. <laughs> but he said, I do need a crew member for this this next race. And it was it was a 24-hour race across the mountains and the desert. And I went down, and I was just supposed to be kind of watching. And if I could help something, I would help with something. And the driver didn't show up for the car. And it was a team, a two, two-man team. And one of them would always be on the bike. And the other one would, like, be in the car and changing clothes because they'd get sopping wet. So they had to keep – every time they change switch off the bikes, they'd change clothes and, and eat and hydrate and all that when they weren't on the bike. And so they had to have this vehicle with them, and the driver didn't show up. And so he looked at me, and he said, you drive. <laughs> So I said, okay, but there wasn't somebody to replace me like there was for the the other guys. And I drove for 24 hours. Oh, goodness. There, there were a couple of times when, when somebody who was doing something else would come up and, and drive for just like a couple of hours. There was, there was another car and there was somebody in there that was navigating and they, they would switch off and have somebody come up. But I, I was in that car except for a couple of, a couple of short naps driving through the night in the desert where it's pitch black mm. uh, on this race. And it, it was fascinating. And I really enjoyed it. And so his next big race was across America. He went from the uh, Pacific Ocean side to the Atlantic Ocean side. And he asked me if I would be the nurse, which is the person who sat in the back of the, the vehicle that went along with him and made sure they got changed, dressed any wounds, which they would tend to get, um, made sure they were hydrated and had things to eat. And so I, I did that. And unfortunately, we didn't get all the way across that time. It was the only time he didn't get all the way across because he's done it for years and he has records and all different things. Uh, phenomenal bike rider. But he happened to, when we were up in the mountains in Colorado, he got pneumonia. 
Oh, good. And fortunately, I was there and was able to take care of him. And we were able to, we, we called an ambulance, but the ambulance was so far away in the mountains that we had to drive down the mountain as they drove up the mountain. And we finally rendezvoused when we ran into each other so he could get uh, the oxygen and things that he needed in the ambulance. But that, that was quite an experience. Then my son-in-law's from Puerto Rico, and I thought, I, I want to go see Puerto Rico. So I took myself to Puerto Rico, <laughs> and that was really exciting. And what was especially neat was my daughter and son-in-law didn't know I was going to go, and I called to talk to my son-in-law. I said, I'm going to Puerto Rico, and tell me where I should go and what I should do, because I want to see it like from your perspective. And he said, well, when are you going? I told him, and he goes, Abby and I get there two days after you get there. So get a hotel for the first two days and the rest of the time stay with us. Wow. And it was amazing because I got to meet all of his family, um, got, had such experiences that I never would have had if I would have done the whole thing by myself and yeah. got to spend special time with them. So that was really cool. And then a friend of mine <clears throat> said, uh, who was teaching at the university, it, summer was coming up and, uh, she said, what are you doing this summer? I said, no, I have no idea, no plans whatsoever. And I said, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm taking my sister to South Africa on this, this adventure tour. And I said, wow, that sounds really neat. I'd like to go to South Africa. And so she said, come along. So I had said I would accept invitations. So I did. And I had an incredible time going to South Africa. And the other really big thing that happened to me was because of all my involvement in theater, my bachelor's degree actually was in theater. Um, the Kern County, that was the county I was in, uh, Board of Trade, their film commission there called me and asked me if I would put together a film festival for them. Wow. So I did that. <laughs> so in that year <laughs> that I said I'd accept invitation, those were the invitations that came to me. Wow. And they're, they're not just come out, you know, come out and for lunch with us. It's a yeah, I didn't get adventure. any of those, yeah. actually. <laughs> Nobody was inviting me to dinner or, or to go see a movie or anything. <laughs> but there were also invitations that allowed you to meet other people, mm -hmm. other people as well. Um, how did you navigate getting back into the dating world again? Well, I wasn't going to at all. I had, had decided I, I had a wonderful marriage with Jacques and, and also very challenging marriage with everything that we went through together. And I thought, I, I'm okay not doing that anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. don't, don't have to, don't, didn't really want to date anybody because I, I never felt like I was unmarried to him. Now, that's was interesting to me because they always say from death till death do you part. And it just didn't dawn on me that I wasn't married just because he died. Mm. So it, it made it kind of hard for me to even think about doing anything like that. And my friend, actually the one who I went to South Africa with, uh, when it was time for school to start again, she goes, okay, so are you dating? It's time. I said, uh, no. <laughs> And she goes, no, very you, forward, you need very to forward of her. <laughs> and the thing about her, she's my age, and she also was single. And I said, you date, <laughs> you know, you go do it. <laughs> you test yeah. the waters and let me know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she said, no, we're talking about you now. You've got to do it. And so she started every time she'd see me, she'd run into me on campus. She'd go, have you gone on Match.com? I said, no, and I'm not going to. And finally, it got to the point where I thought, she must be telling me this all these times. Because I, I didn't have an opportunity to talk to her much usually at all. Because we, we taught different classes on different areas on the campus. And we just didn't run into each other that much. And for that to be happening that often, I thought, I, I, I need to pay attention. That's interesting. Because a lot of people would have said, she's annoying me. I'm just going to start distancing myself from her because she won't. She's relentless. And it's interesting yeah. that you took it as a... This is a sign I must yeah. pay attention to that. And and I think one of the things that allowed me to do that was my saying yes to accepting invitations because there was no reason for me to do that either. And I had such incredible results from that. I thought if she's she's it's like she's giving me a message and I need to pay attention. Have you always been very intuitive? basically yeah yeah it, it's not something that i i say i'm intuitive but 
I I can reflect on my life and see places where Follow I have those. been full of those gut feelings yeah yeah so i was i was glad that i did with her because I, I went on match.com on thursday night and met ron that night on match.com and by sunday we had decided to go out to dinner together and we've been together ever since so how long was how long was that space that you were single for well, not single but we don't after was from february one year to November, or, uh, sorry, September of the next year. Okay. So it was uh, um, over a year and a half. Okay. Um, getting close to two years. So it was, it was that long. And it, and it was okay. I really didn't think, I, I thought I had just found a really good friend and we could just have a good time together and talk. And it just evolved into something quite beautiful. And the really interesting thing, there was one other person that had asked me to go someplace during that, that time when people... I, I had agreed to accept invitations and she was a friend of mine from an organization that I had been in. And she said that there was going to be a lecture at the university and she wanted to go to it and wanted to know if I'd go. And I said, sure. So we went and when we got there, she said, I hope you don't mind, but a friend of mine is, is showing this guy around town. He's new to town and she's, she's, I offered to let him sit with us. I said, I don't care. And they sat on the other side. So <laughs> I didn't know, but when they came in, I saw this man that, that she was with and I thought, wow. And he shook my hand. And when we held hands, I thought, this woman's a lucky woman. And, you know, he's, he just was special. He was, I just had this really special feeling about him. And then we sat down and he was with four people. He was on one end, I was on the other, and we didn't talk together anymore. We didn't leave together afterwards or anything. It was just that very brief encounter. And we realized after we'd been, Ron and I had been dating for a couple of months, I said, you know, when I first met you, I thought you looked so familiar to me and I couldn't figure out why. And it just dawned on me. You were at that lecture. And I told him the name of who we went to see the lecture. And he goes, that's right, because he hadn't realized it either. And he said, what was funny was that the girl that brought him was bringing him to meet the girl that I went with, because she thought that they'd make a good pair, and he didn't like her <laughs> at all. But he told her, but if you didn't meet her, you did that other girl. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind seeing her again. And, and then that's what happened. So, Wow. So you were with... Ron for how long? Ten years. Ten years. So talk me through that as well, because he ended up with congestive heart failure as well. Yes, he did too. He was uh, he was a minister. He wasn't working as a minister anymore because he essentially retired. And before he was, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. He had three master's degrees. Wow. Uh, he had a, a bachelor's in psychology from UCLA. Uh, master's in statistics from UCLA and a master's in public health from Cal Berkeley. And then he got his uh, master's in theology from the Holmes Institute. Oh so he goodness. had all this That education. is a lot of student debt for you guys over there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about it though, because it was all paid off by the time. And actually he got to end on some, some very special programs uh, at the university. It was, he was recruited to go to the university. So he, he didn't have to pay a whole lot of his, his student fees. Oh, good. But he, he was fascinating, and he did amazing work in his life. Like uh, with the public health thing, he was uh, sent to Micronesia to set up for the World Health System. He, he set up their, their health delivery system. Wow. So that, that was a, a way cool thing. And I think he probably would have stayed there forever, but he, he had a contract to go and do this. And when the contract was done, then he came back to the uh, – the United States, but he, he had many, many jobs, big, high wheeling, dealing things that, that were really big. And he was, he was at a point in his life where he was, he was six years older than I am and he was ready to be retired and just enjoy his life. And so mm -hmm. that was fine with me. And we just, we had a, a really nice life and, and he had come to Bakersfield cause he was doing a, a church there and, it just didn't work out. It wasn't a good fit. And he couldn't stand Bakersfield. <laughs> it's, uh, 
a very conservative area. And I never dreamed I would live in Bakersfield either. And if I hadn't married Jacques, I wouldn't have. But um, he he said he just couldn't live there anymore. And he wanted to move to Ventura and he wanted me to move with him. And I ultimately I did. And then ultimately, uh, the, the day after Christmas, one day, you know, this year, it was in 2010, and he'd asked me to marry him several times, and I just, I just was, it was weird. I was kind of balking because of what I told you about not feeling unmarried. Yeah. And, but I also felt like I wasn't, how cool was it for me to be with somebody when I was feeling that way? But I had finally, I think, settled that with myself and that, that I was going to be okay. And I had gotten to the point where I thought I, I probably could get married. And when I woke up the day after Christmas in 2010, I was looking at the calendar for something. I said, Ron, New Year's Day is going to be 1111. I said, wouldn't that be a cool day to get married? And he said, yes, I'll make the arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> a few days later, we got married. <laughs> So after all these years of, of asking, it was sort of mm-hmm. a shotgun. He, he saw his opening and wasn't gonna, yeah. wasn't gonna miss it. <laughs> That's gorgeous. <laughs> and it was quite lovely, and and he he did very well, and and he he was, uh, oh, for the first six years we t- were together, he he was fine physically, and then he started just having. He'd always had some high blood pressure, but he was taking medication for it, and that was it. And then he started having uh, problems with a congestive heart failure, with having episodes where he just he couldn't breathe and his blood pressure would go up real high and he'd have to go into the hospital and get it back under control so he could come home. And that kept happening, happening more and more often. And then one night he came in and uh, he was standing in the doorway and I, I could tell he couldn't talk. And I said, you need to go to the hospital. And he nodded his head and I said, should I call the ambulance the hospital? It's only about four blocks from us. Should I call the ambulance or should we get in the car? And he started walking toward the car. And I knew that meant he couldn't wait long enough for the ambulance to come. So I drove him to the hospital and he had a, a code with, uh, they had like 14 different people in the emergency room working on him at the same time. But they pulled him through. And we had uh, decided that he, he had decided that the way he was feeling that he really wanted to move to Maui, Hawaii. And he wanted to move there because when after he'd finished that job in Micronesia, he'd spent some time here and he loved it. And he still had friends here. And we'd come here on our honeymoon and we'd come over a couple times a year because we liked it so much. And he said, let's just move there. And I thought he's telling me that's where he wants to be for the rest of his life. And so we did. We sold our house, bought a house here, and we spent two years here um, and before he died. And again, in and out of the hospital here and him going on dialysis here because he went into renal failure here. And Did you have the same situation happen again in terms of the friends disappearing after no. Ron's passing? Right. Totally opposite totally opposite we made new friends here in hawaii in hawaii uh the word for family is ohana and you can have people in your ohana are who aren't blood related to you and we didn't have any blood relations here but we we developed quite considering that we weren't able to really go many places uh people kept coming to us by the people we'd meet they other people would come over to to meet us and We'd have parties and, and things because people would come to us, and our ohana kept building and building, and it, it was it was quite wonderful. And finally, the the week before the week he died, he was in really bad shape and had to be in the hospital. I stayed with him that whole week. I, I won't tell you the details because it's hard to to stomach, but. He, the nurses couldn't get to him fast enough to help him with everything that was going on to him. So I just stayed with him and I was like awake for the whole week. And on that Friday, he asked the doctor who came in, what are you going to do for me? And he goes, well, we're going to do some tests. He says, haven't you done every possible test you could do? And he said, well, yeah, but we'll figure something out because we really can't figure out what's making what's happening to you now happen to you. He lost 
35 pounds in one week. I, don't, I, so, I think that's around 15 kilos, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure the, yeah, the conversion. Sure the it's version. a lot. It's a lot. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. And he was he was very weak. And he said, so tell me, are you going to do anything for me? Because they tried every medication for the symptoms that he had, and none of them had any effect at all. The, the dialysis was a significant problem for him. And he said, okay, I want to go home. And the doctor said, well, you can't do that. You, you'd be checking out against medical advice. And he said, well, what are you going to do for me if I stay here? And he didn't have an answer. And so Ron said, then I'm going home. So the doctor refused to give him any of the medications that he needed because he was checking out against medical advice. That's appalling. Yes, it was. Fortunately, we had a friend, and this is a very intuitive friend. She's uh, an RN. She's a, a nurse practitioner now, but at the time she was an RN and she was working for hospice. And every time we'd go to the hospital, and she didn't, she wasn't at the hospital all the time. She would just go in there for consultations and something. Every time we would go to the hospital, she'd find us. She knew that we were there. There was one time when he, he hadn't checked in yet. He was, we were sitting in the emergency room lobby. And she came to see us there because she knew that we were there. And it wasn't because she saw us on records. She just knew we were at the hospital. That's incredible. And since uh, she was a hospice nurse, I called her and I said, this is what the situation is. And she said, don't worry about it. She said, I'll have a hospital bed ready for you in, in your home when you get home. There were a couple supplies that I had to stop by, and I, I had nightmares about going to get supplies on the way home from the hospital. Yeah. But I, I was able to stop and get some things. And... She talked to the hospice doctor, and even though he wasn't on hospice, she, they were good friends, and she said, I'll come out and get him the medication. So she came out, and he did, and it was a Friday night, so we were very concerned about getting the medication because if we didn't have it then, we wouldn't be able to see anybody till Monday. Mm. So she, uh, she got it all taken care of it for us. And on Monday, Ron said, I think it's time for me to go on hospice now. And I said, Okay, what would you like to do? And we got we got care to, to help me too because I was absolutely exhausted having been up twenty four hours a day for a week, and so somebody came in to help with the, the, his physical care, and we started making phone calls and we called uh, all of his friends that we knew who would want to be with him. It meant a trip to Hawaii from the mainland, and they all came. We had them sleeping on the floor on air mattresses and sleeping in neighbors' houses that were around us. Uh, and we had a party all week long. They, people were cooking and singing and dancing for him and anything he wanted they had. If he wanted slower music, we had musicians come over and play for him. And it was it was amazing. And at the same time, anybody who couldn't come, he hadn't iPhone where he could FaceTime and he, he made a list of all the people that he wanted to talk to that he knew he wasn't going to be able to see and he was able to talk to every single one of them and FaceTime so he could see him and say goodbye. And then uh, that Friday uh, early evening he just went to sleep and that was it. So couldn't have been more different. <laughs> Sorry, that got me. It was really beautiful. <laughs> it's okay. I understand. I, I'm. I've, I understand. <laughs> how did you come about? Uh, how did you come to writing the book and sort of um, wanting to share the story and educating other people through your grief and sharing your grief? How did that come about? Well, what happened for me was I was. Um, I'm, I'm a writer. I've written three college textbooks, and I used writing a lot to just explore things and explore feelings. And I started writing to help me deal with my grief, to figure out my feelings and what do I want now and what am I going to do. And the more I wrote, the more different things I found that I was writing. And I thought, I, I think I could help other people deal with their grief if I taught them how to do this kind of writing. So I didn't know... I knew people on the island, but I didn't know anybody who had had somebody die. So I wasn't sure who to talk to. And, you know, the, the, with the island, <laughs> you're kind of limited to the people who are already here. So I went on um, Meetup and formed a group and said it was writing through grief and anybody wanted to come 
write together through grief could come on over to my house on Saturday afternoons. And they did. And I met a whole new community of friends <laughs> that we all got really close and everybody had different kinds of losses. It wasn't all people who'd lost their husbands like I did, but lost a child, lost a mom, uh, all, all different kinds of losses. And it, it was really helpful to all of us. And at the same time, I was trying to read because I, I hadn't read that much after Jacques died. Um, I just, I didn't think at, at that time, it wasn't that big of a deal to like use Amazon and order books. And so I, I didn't have books there to read and I didn't feel like going out and shopping. And so I hadn't really read much, but now I could order things online. So I started ordering books and reading the books that I could find about grief. And so many of them were memoirs and they were poignant stories and, you know, incredible experiences, but that wasn't what I needed. I wanted somebody to tell me what to do. And so I was, I was a little disappointed in, in the reading. And about six months after Ron died, he had a very, very good friend. We were family friends. The, the husband, their uh, husband and wife and Ron and I, and they had uh, teenage daughters and they lived close to us where we were. And Ron had worked on a huge project uh, with him for his business. And they were just really, really close. And he called my called Ron dad. He was young enough to be his son and he always called Ron dad. And one of my friends called me and she said, chap dropped dead last night. And, and he'd, he'd been, we had only been to in Hawaii for two years and he had come to visit us twice during that time already because they were that close. Mm. And I was so concerned for his wife. That was my first thought. I never did find out what caused his death, what happened. He just was gone. He went to work that day and he didn't come home that night. Wow. Uh, so I thought I've got to do something for his wife. And I knew if I wrote her a letter to get there too late when like other cards were coming in and stuff and she wouldn't necessarily even open it. And I knew she wouldn't be up to talking on the phone at that point, but there were things I wanted her to know right then, just hours after Chap died. And so I wrote her a letter and in it, I, I put things like, this is what you should think. These are things to be concerned about right now. And these are the things that you don't need to worry about right now. And just, just don't, you know, just ignore them. You don't need to deal with that. And she let me know later that that was so invaluable to her because had, she had tons of people come around her. You know, when younger people die, there's, you know, well, yeah. mu much, much more people. And she said, nobody said the things to me that you said, and it helped me so much. So I thought, I've got to do more than just that. So I decided I would write her uh, a card every week for the first year after Chap died. And I was always taking pictures on my phone around Hawaii and had all these beautiful uh, tropical pictures. And I thought I'll put a different picture on the front of each one and then I'll write something about what she may be going through at, at that point in that first year for each one of the cards. And then I thought, you know, if I'm going to do that, I need to know that I've got 52 different things that I can say before I commit to that. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat down and I made a list of these, these 52 different things and started uh, making the cards. And I was, I was really happy with them. And when I was in the process of, I printed them on my computer and, and, and when I was in the process of it, since, since I'm a writer, I thought I've got an outline. And I thought I, I should write a book about this because the, the way I wrote the book, I did have my story in there, um, but I also wrote it with each chapters on a different subject, like the cards where each one was on a different subject. Like one of them would be on, on gratitude. One of them would be on forgiveness. One of them would be self-care. You know, each, each one was a different one. And there would be my experiences, other people's experiences, and what they could do for themselves to help them with this particular issue, with actual action steps that they could take at the end of each chapter. So I was able to get an agent and get a book contract and wrote it, and it came out last January. Congratulations. It's called Loving and Living Through Grief, through your grief? Loving and Living Your Way Through your Grief. Way. 
Um, and it's available on Amazon and in any place books are sold. It's traditionally published, so in any booksellers are able to get it to to sell. Talk to me about your podcast. Well, my podcast came I because publishing a book in the middle of a pandemic on an island that's in one of the most remote places of the world. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. I've got a book. Who who can I tell? <laughs> But I had heard that, uh, oh, I always forget his name, but he wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled. And The Road okay. Less Traveled was on the bestseller list. I think he's got the record for the, the amount of time that it was on the bestseller oh. list. And he got that because he did constant interviews for the, the first year. It was like every day. And then after that, he'd do like three a week always. And I thought, well, I can't do interviews because there's not that many people here to interview. Um, but I thought I could do podcasts. So I started contacting people and figuring out how to get on other people's podcasts. And there's lots I can talk about. You're the only one that I've ever told this whole story to because um, there's, there's all kinds of things to talk about. And I've talked to all kinds of people all over the world. And I, I really enjoyed it. And then another thing that happened was one of the books that I, I read was called Happy for No Reason by Marcy Shimoff. I don't know if you've heard of, of no. her or that. I don't know if you know the movie The Secret. Do you know I've that? Heard, yeah, heard I've, I've she, seen she it. was in the, in the, the book as well. I haven't. Yeah, I don't think I've. I don't think I've watched it, but I know all it, of the premise. It's way cool, really way cool. And I had seen it. Um, that's how I started doing gratitude lists and learned as much as I did about gratitude. But she, her whole thing is happiness and how important happiness is in your life, no matter what else is happening. And I discovered that she had uh, created this program called uh, Happy for No Reason Certified Trainer Program, where if you go through the program and get certified, it's quite a process, then you can use all of her information that she's done all this research and all these different things that, that you learn in the program, you can use with whatever you're teaching. You don't have to teach happy for no reason classes. You, I can teach grief and happiness. And so I started um, talking about that. And I thought, you know what, I, I want to, there's, there were two things I wanted to do. One of them is I decided I love being on podcasts so much that I'd start my own podcast. Mm -hmm. And I did, it started last November, it's called grief and happiness. And it's doing very well. And I'm just amazed at the people that I interview that combine grief and happiness. Mm. We have an occasional tear, but generally we laugh a lot. And it, it just feels good. And it's the kind of thing that people are grieving. It's really good for them to, to listen to something like that. And the other thing I wanted to do was, especially since the pandemic and people couldn't get together the way they usually did, was start an alliance so that people who were grieving could be with people who understood them, who, who would get them. Because like I said, after Jacques died, nobody got me. Nobody understood what I was going through. And if I would have had something like this, it would have made a huge difference for me. So, and I wasn't quite sure how to do it. I knew I wanted to do it online. And so I did a pilot program where I invited a whole lot of people that I knew from all over and we did it all online. And I, the first meeting, I told them all about what my philosophy was, why I wanted to do it. The next meeting I did a sample meeting where we wrote about grief together and then talked about what we wrote. And then they learned a happiness practice. And then the next meeting we talked about, okay, what do we do now? And they, they all loved the sample meeting. They loved the concept of what was going on. They thought it was such a good idea. And I said, well, I, I don't have any problem putting it together because I've been teaching online at the university actually since the early 1990s. I was the real pioneer in the field, loved to teach online. And so I said, I, I don't have a problem putting it online. I can do that. My problem is I don't want to charge people for this, but... I've been in situations before to teach something that you don't charge for. People don't commit to it or mm. they don't show up or they think they're committing to it and then they drop out where if they pay, they come. But at the same time, people in this particular situation, I don't want them to be thinking about money mm. to have to do with it. I want to think about comfort, support, love, and happiness that they can get from coming to these groups. 
And so the people at the group said, well, that's not a problem. We'll just make a nonprofit foundation and we will underwrite what you're doing so that people who come are supported by this foundation that, that exists specifically to help them. So it's not like they're getting something for free. They're, they're having it all paid for for them so that they can have the opportunity. So we started, yeah, the meetings actually started in uh, November of the grief and happiness. Uh, we meet every week and then the nonprofit is, uh, is doing very well. They're going to do their first fundraising event on the March 20th on the equinox when the day and night is the same length. And they decided, too, for that, that it's a fundraiser, but ironically, they're not going to charge for anybody to come to it. They just would ask people if they'd like to support what we're doing, that we would gratefully accept tax-deductible donations. How do people find the – how do they find these classes that you're doing? I have uh, a website, and they can find them on the website. I talk about them on the podcasts and on my podcast, and um, I have a newsletter that I send out. And then now that I've, I have the foundation and all these people, they're getting the information out to everybody they know and asking them to get it out to everybody they know. So it's kind of organic. Mm. Are you doing any collaborations with anybody else in the grief space? Um, I actually yes I, I just i've been doing a few panels yeah um i did did one with unity church in november we had 1200 people involved that uh, came to see our panel i did one just last week with um, a writers a women writers association in san francisco where we had a panel that talked to them about uh, since they were writers how things that they could do with writing about grief Mm. How that they could help help people with the writing that they did. So when whenever I I meet somebody that we've got something in common, we work to see if there's something that we can do together to support each other. I'm I'm in the the works now with a, a big three day retreat that I'm I'm helping co co facilitate that I I can't really talk about yet, but it's going to be fabulous. You should reach out to, there's a lady that I've actually had on the podcast as well. Her name is Melissa Pierce. I've just looked her up and she's got her own podcast now as well. And she wrote an, a, a book as well about um, grief and sort of losing her husband and so forth. And I'd be interesting to see whether or not anything would come out of that collaboration. Um, oh, she has I'd products as well for, for helping people through it. So, yeah. Um, it would be great. I'd love to have her information and contact her. Yeah, I can definitely facilitate that. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been such a pleasure having a chat with you. Um, living life, loving, sorry, loving and living your way through grief is the book um, and people can jump on and do they just Google that or Google Emily Throw Threat? They can do either. It, okay. it's, it's easier to, I think, my, my name has is kind of strange <laughs> spelling, so it's probably easier to do loving and living your way through grief. <laughs> I'll tag everything as well in the show notes so everyone can have access to it. But thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 